Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. We'll be looking this morning at verses 28 to 44. You have 28 to 40 actually printed for you in the bulletin. So if you don't have your Bible with you, you'll miss those last few verses. So I do encourage you to take your copy of the Word of God and open it to this section. Because I will be reading a few additional verses. And by God's providence this morning as we've been talking about Servant Group International and the mission trip that we are about to leave on, we see that Jesus is coming to the culmination of His mission here in Luke chapter 19. And so I pray and trust that the Lord will use the pairing of those two realities right now in our midst for the purposes of calling us unto the mission of God as we see it outlined in this wonderful passage. Let's look together, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. This is God's Word. And when He had said these things, that is Jesus, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, And when he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will be set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've heard your word in your presence. We know that the Spirit of God is present with us. 
We know that from before all eternity, you knew the souls that would be in this room. You knew the word that would be read. And we know that you have kind intentions to speak to us blessing from this passage. We would ask that you would now clear away from our lives and mind's eye the distractions that the evil one would want to place in our midst. I would ask that you would not let the birds of the air come and gobble up the seed or the cares of life choke out the planting of this, your word, but that you would water it and give it the provision of sunshine and the work of your spirit would grow it into a large and vibrant plant bearing fruit in the lives of every soul in this room individually and us as your body corporately. For that to happen, it is you who must do the work. So come now and be our preacher. Come and be our teacher. Come and open up our hearts that we might see Jesus. We ask this in His holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you've joined us since the beginning of our service this morning, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. We are returning to this Gospel of Luke that we have literally been in for years as a congregation. And so some of you who have joined in our midst in the last few months, you've not heard any messages from the Gospel of Luke. It's surprising to hear that we're going to return to the Gospel of Luke, but I simply reference for you the bulletin. We are in part 87, that word is correct, 87 in this ongoing series of the Gospel of Luke. And as I look at that number, I think, oh, you long-suffering and patient people, thank you for being long-suffering and patient. I cannot seem to find large sections of the Gospel of Luke to take in one fell swoop. But by God's grace, we'll continue our work through this glorious, glorious passage that's before us in this amazing book. Scholars call this particular section, uh, Luke chapter 19, 28 through 44, as a literary theme in the Gospel of Luke, meaning that there's a break or a natural division in the text. That that which has come before, chapter 19 in the previous of the book of Luke, is different from that which comes after. In fact, this section known as the journey narrative that we're concluding today in the Gospel of Luke began back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Ten chapters ago, when we're told in Luke 9.51 that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. It was a statement regarding his direction and his mission. It was a statement that he was brought here to go to the city of peace, Jerusalem. And it was there that he would accomplish the mission for which God had sent him. Now if you chart Jesus' journey from Luke 9.51 to Luke 19.28, you know what you'll find? It's a winding road. Jesus didn't put a dot on the map and draw a straight line between these two places of where he was in Luke 9, 51 and where he ends up in Luke 19, verse 28. And the realization is it's because Luke and Jesus, as he are, shows us this journey, are operating according to divine appointed time and divine appointed travel 
which means that Jesus zigzagged his way to Jerusalem, uh, going to Galilee, going to Samaria, going to Perdia, going, going uh, to these various places, stopping in no more than no less than 35 localities to do miracles, to give teachings, to preach the gospel of repentance. Until he comes to this moment, it's a critical moment, whereas he set his face to Jerusalem ten chapters earlier, he now is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, two miles away, east in Bethany, probably staying at Hotel Bethany, also known as Lazarus's home, one of the favorite places that Jesus stayed as he traveled. He would end up with his good friend Lazarus there in Bethany, probably traveling with Lazarus to Jerusalem at this particular moment in the text. Why? Because it's Passover. It's the high holy day. It's the Christmas of the Old Testament. It's the anticipation of the calendar year for the people of Israel. They are looking to Passover to remember the great redemption that God had brought with the people of Israel out of Exodus through his righteous right hand, through his instrument Moses, and led the people through the wilderness into the promised land. They would remember the story of redemption. Jesus is right there at that moment, that high holy day as he's entering Jerusalem. And because of that, it's an understatement to say that expectations were high. The realization is many of his disciples for a very long time had thought, Jesus, it's time to get this Messiah thing really rolling. And many had expected as he came close to Jerusalem that he would use this opportunity to make his move. That he would begin now to reach for the Messiahship that was rightfully his and he would come out as it were as the political ruler of Israel that would free them from the captivity of Rome And he would restore the throne of David and the glories of Israel. That was the hope. That was the belief. And as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, the excitement grows as he's on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it must have gotten to a fever pitch when he gets close enough to the district of Bethpage. We're told here in the text he sends two of his disciples, right? Down into this little, little district, very small little place where he says, you're going to go there, these two disciples, you're going to find a a colt or a donkey. It's going to be tied up. And if you see it, you're to go and untie it. And if anybody asks you about it, you're to say the Lord has need of it. It's like a passcode. It's like a, a password. If you say these words, they're going to give it to you. And sure enough, the two disciples go down. They find the colt, just as Jesus said it would be. They untie it. They are asked. They say that the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, this unridden colt, donkey, is, is brought to the Lord Jesus for him to travel on in his way to Jerusalem. Now, this, again, would have been an incredible moment for many who knew their Old Testament. These are Jews, after all, who've been steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament and knew to be looking for that anointed one, that Messiah who's going to come as a deliverer, and they would have known what we read earlier in our service, Zechariah chapter 9. They would have known the promise of Zechariah chapter 9, that 600 years earlier from this moment, a prophet had said that a king would come to you, one who is righteous, having salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey. As Jesus takes up residence 
for this journey on this donkey, going into Jerusalem on this triumphal entry, there would have been many who would around him who would have, who would have known that Zechariah chapter 9 is now being expressed in the very life and the very ministry of Jesus. And thus, the excitement begins to build. Jesus, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace be in heaven and glory to God in the highest. A direct quote from Psalm 118, one of the great Hallel Psalms, which would have been chanted during the Feast of Passover, would have been recounted during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, words that would have been ready to the tongue for many, many Israelites. When they saw this begin to happen, jubilant praise, excitement, begin to manifest itself in the, the crowd. And yet Jesus is really responding very humbly to all of this. Yes, he is the king of Zion who is coming. But he's not acting like any, any normal king would act. A donkey was, of course, a humble animal. And Zechariah chapter 9 tells us he's a king humbly mounted on that donkey. Humble and king. Contradiction in terms. We don't, we don't know leaders and humility. Le leaders are prideful. I mean, as kings are going to go into the cities that, that mark their, um, their political inheritance, they go in on horses with chariots, with people and princes and kings that they've conquered in chains and an entourage of soldiers and beautiful women. They come and make a massive display of their strength and their power and their prestige. But Jesus here comes humbly mounted on a donkey. He's telling us something about the nature of his kingship. And he's telling us something about the nature of the kingdom that he has come to bring. He's displaying in, in earthly and form as he goes into the triumphal entry what Paul would later write about in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, this Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking on the form of the servant, by being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, what? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Jesus was known and marked by his humility. It is as Graham Kendrick wrote in the song that he wrote just a few years ago, this Jesus, meekness and majesty combined, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. That's what we have here. And let me tell you why that's the perfect king and the perfect kingdom for us. Because we need a king who is really a king, who is unified in nature and authority with God, who can represent us before God. We need a king who has power. We need a king who is strong. But we're not looking for a king who lords his power over us, who, who tyrannizes like a dictator over those whom he can snuff out with the, with the corner of his boot. We need one who is simultaneously with ultimate and authoritative power to represent us to God, to be humble and not ashamed to identify with us. To love us. To be made in like form. 
And to not despise us, to not count equality with God a thing that he must continue to reach for. You see, we have a fitting Savior in Jesus. That's what's being displayed in this passage. Now as this excitement and this atmosphere stirs, you can imagine, this is a little like a festival or parade. As Jesus, this anointed one, now on a donkey, headed up, as you'll remember, Jerusalem is not a reference to the north in terms of direction, it's a reference to elevation. It's a topographical. That he's headed up to Jerusalem. It was strange to ride a donkey actually up to Jerusalem. Normally one would simply walk. It's very unique. So the riding was an indication that he's coming into his city. He's coming into his kingship as he comes into Jerusalem and and the, the, the scene would have been electric and rife with expectation and with hope. And at the sound of this, predictably, who comes into the scene? Right? You heard it? The Pharisees. Every crowd has to have a party pooper, and the Pharisees are our party pooper. We've seen this throughout the, the Gospel of Luke. Anytime Jesus does anything that's of any significance or anything whatsoever for that matter, the Pharisees are going to pipe up and here, here they do and they say to Jesus, Jesus, teacher, you know better than this. They're singing Psalm 118 about you. And you know what Psalm 118 is about. It's about the Messiah. It's about the anointed one. It's about the deliverer who's going to come for the people of Israel and you and I both know Let's not get above our pay grade here. And of course, Jesus, receiving this from the Pharisees, you know, must have had a number of righteous thoughts work through his mind. I would not have had such righteous thoughts, but Jesus certainly did. And he makes a point that he doesn't make previous to this moment in the book of Luke. He says, you know what, if I tell them to pipe down, you know what will actually happen the rocks will cry out. Now, Jesus is making a very strong statement here. He's, he's saying that, that the DNA of creation is to glorify God. The DNA of creation is to glorify God. And if necessary, if his people who have mouths won't open them up in jubilation for who it is that he is and acknowledge it, then inanimate objects who are, which are mouthless will be singing praises to the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is, you can't put a lid on this praise. That the world itself is on its tippy toes in excitement at what it is that's happening. I'm sorry you can't see it. I'm sorry, as it's described here in this passage, it's hidden from you. And Jesus is letting us know here that this is the time for him to be known. Back in Luke chapter 9, when, G when Peter confesses that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, do you remember what Jesus says? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then do you remember what he did? He strictly commanded them not to speak anything about this. Keep quiet. Keep quiet. You remember the times through the Gospel of Luke where the crowd in a frenzy would want to make Jesus their king, put him on their shoulders and carry him to Jerusalem and make it happen on the spot. What would Jesus do? He would disappear. 
in, in, what, in what it feels like a, a spiritual sleight of hand. It, Jesus moved through the crowds and disappeared. You know. <laughs> How did he do that? He moved through the crowds and disappeared. Why did Jesus do that up to this moment? Because the time was not right, but now the time is right. He's coming to the end of his mission. He's coming to reveal who it is that he really is. But here's what's ironic about this passage. As this excitement and this festival and this parade gathers around him, Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, turns that Mount of Olive and begins to now see the city of peace off in the distance. And the text tells us that he weeps over the city. Tears begin to form in his eyes and they begin to fall down his cheeks. He is, he is literally, the term here in the Greek, he is grief-stricken. It's just not, he didn't get misty-eyed because he thought of Jerusalem and the excitement of Passover. These are not tears of joy. These are tears of grief. These are tears of sorrow. This is a man who is being shaken in his own soul as he looks at Jerusalem. Now I want you to picture this scene. We've got the, the Pharisees who are angry. We've got the crowds who are rejoicing. We've got Jesus who's in mourning. This is an emotionally high text. And we've got a variety of things being seen here. We've got the crowd that sees Jesus for the Messiah that he is. But as we learn, they don't really know what that's going to mean. And we have the Pharisees who don't really see Jesus at all. They just want him gone and they're angry and rejected. We see Jesus, though, who sees to the heart of Jerusalem. And you see, because of what you see gives direction to your reaction. What it is you behold is displayed in how you respond. The Pharisees are angry and call him to rebuke because they want nothing to do with the celebration of Jesus. The people are jubilant because they think he's about to overthrow Rome. Jesus is crying because he knows the real story. He knows the spiritual narrative of our hearts. He knows the reality of where it is that we we really are. That's why I find this text a great irony that it's called the triumphal entry. If you really think about it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel all that triumphal when you begin to see the response of Jesus, the king. What king cries with mourning on the day of his inauguration? But it's because Jesus knows that this voice of Blessed is he who is in the name of the Lord will in a week's time be a very different sounding kind of crowd. A crowd that will call for his execution. Not necessarily the people who are there in that moment, but another crowd for, indeed. And we find that Jesus knows that the writing is already there on the wall. And when he looks at Jerusalem, the city of peace, he doesn't see peace at all. He doesn't see peace at all. And in fact, he forecasts that what they have in the future is warfare. Look at the way he says it at the end of this text. For days will come upon you, speaking of Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What an inauguratory speech this is. You know, when the President of the United States is elected to office and he goes for the day of his inauguration, you don't typically hear these sorts of words. 
O nation of the United States of America, one day you will be barricaded and hemmed in on every side and not a stone will be left upon another. We would really seriously second-guess our election of this man. This is Jesus' inauguration speech. He doesn't mince words here. He speaks the truth of what is there. Now, to be honest, if we had a man in office who spoke those words, we might should be encouraged. He might be much closer to the truth than what we normally hear in a political speech. Jesus is not here to win a popularity contest or get the electoral college to sway in his direction. Jesus is here to tell the truth on which life and death sits. And death hangs over Jerusalem and he wants them to know it. He wouldn't be a faithful prophet if he didn't speak these words over Jerusalem. You see, he is no typical king because he is building no typical kingdom. He knew that that cry of Hosanna and blessed meant something else to those people than the peace he was actually going to bring. You see, when they say, Hosanna, the Lord saves, they think, get rid of Rome and let Israel come into its own. And Jesus is thinking about their hearts and the sin of curse, this cursed sin and death. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they think blessing the establishment of the Davidic throne. They certainly didn't think the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders in his crucifixion. When they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they were actually, actually more interested in the peace of the temporal world and the glory of Israel to recover its golden age. They certainly weren't thinking of the peace that God would found through Christ on the cross. And they certainly weren't thinking of the glory that would come in the cross and the resurrection. Now we know this because in verse 41, which I really see as the central question of this text, if you look at it with me, 41 and 42, as Jesus draws near weeping to the city, notice what he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That you would know the things that make for peace. The sense in the passage is, oh, it would have pleased me so much if you would know the things that make for peace. And of course, the, the implication is you don't know. As I look at you, smiling, laughing, jubilant, you don't know the things that make for peace. This is a shallow peace. This is a superficial peace. This is a joy that doesn't come from a clear acknowledgement and recognition of what I'm doing and the peace I've come to bring. There's misunderstanding. There's confusion. And Jesus says, oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. It reminds me of, must have been the experience of Jeremiah as he's preaching to the people of Israel. <laughs> Called the weeping prophet. Appropriately so, given our text. Jeremiah would preach to the people of God during a time in which Jerusalem and the people of God would be doomed and destruction and exile was in the future. And what are we told in Jeremiah? The people kept hearing but did not hear, kept listening but did not understand. It was falling on deaf ears. But you know what? It didn't stop them rejoicing. 
I want you to know things were great in Israel during the time of Jeremiah. It wasn't if everybody was, the economy was tanked and people were losing their house and the stock market was on the low ebb. And No, no, things were fine. In fact, they were saying things like peace, peace, when there was no peace. See, that's the frightening thing. That's the frightening thing is you have to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to believe, the will to obey. And that's given to us by the Spirit. That's what we're praying for even as we hear God's words this morning. That we would know the things that make for peace. Do you know the things that make for peace? Do you know the things that make for peace? It really is the question of this text. Last week in Colossians chapter 3, as we concluded our vision sermons, I I wanted so desperately to get to verse 15. I didn't really get there. We stopped short in verse 14, where we talked about love being the bond that, that brings harmony to all things. We said love is like the virtue that conducts all of the other virtues and makes them play like a symphony in unity together. That's what we said love was like. And as soon as Paul says that in Colossians 3, charging us to put on love, the greatest of these, he says, you know what flows out of that love? Peace. And let the peace of Christ, he says, rule, be a king in your hearts to which you've been called. That's what he says. Isn't that wonderful? In light of our passage today, let the peace of Christ... Do we know the things that make for peace? That's the question. As the elders and I gathered on Friday this week for our retreat, we prayed through Colossians chapter 3. We prayed that the Lord would do away with superficial peace in our congregation. And that He would fill us full of the peace of Christ. Because peace unlike those jubilant worshipers next to Jesus, doesn't come when your bank account is full. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't come when your health is exactly where you want it. It doesn't come when all of your relationships are perfectly unified and aligned and symmetrical and you like the way it's working. It doesn't come when you've got the perfect job and you're living into the sweet spot of your vocation. Those are the things of the earth. Set your mind not on things of the earth. Set your mind on the things that are above. Those are the things of the earth. Let me tell you, if you set your mind there, you you are doomed to experience turmoil. Because money comes and goes. Health comes and goes, and mostly goes. Ultimately will go. Relationships will come and go. You know what? It is likely we will all die, and few of our relationships might not be exactly the way we want them. If we invest in the things of circumstance for peace, getting Rome off our back and becoming Israel and getting the throne back in the glory days. If that's the focus. Do you know what actually happens? We will likely die old, cynical men and women. Beat up and drained because the Lord has taken from us in His grace the things that we have invested in in this life. 
But that's not God's point. God's hope is that you'll despair of the things of the world. Do You see, the peace is not circumstantial. The peace is Christological. The peace is Christological. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ call the shots in your heart and in your community. And what we're actually hearing by those words from Paul in relationship to Jesus who's saying in this passage, what are the things that make for peace is us asking the question, what is it? How do I get that in Christ? What does that look like? And in this passage, we see that Jesus says, I'm coming to bring a peace that the people don't really want. And they're wanting a peace for me that I'm not going to give. But should they have the eyes to see? Should they have the ears to hear? They would know that the peace that they want is foolish and they would begin to experience the peace that is me. The peace that is me. The peace that you have when you have no money and a smile on your face in Jesus. The peace that you have when you gain the diagnosis and you're headed to death and you lean into the tape with joy. The peace that happens when you go through turmoil in relationship and you look to Jesus, the reconciler of all things. The peace that's deeper than circumstance. The peace that is me, Jesus says. Yes, how can I get that peace, Jesus tells us. And he tells us through the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. He is the head of the body, Jesus. He's the head of the body. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. In everything he might be king. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, what's he doing? Reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. How in the world is he doing this? Making peace by the blood of his cross. There it is. Oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. Paul says, know the cross. Know the cross. How is the cross a making of peace? Well, you have this beautiful king who steps into the volatile turmoil and curse where there is no peace on your behalf. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross and his father turned his face from him, and the wrath of our sin descended upon Jesus and the penalty of our sin laid upon his shoulders, there was no sense of shalom in Jesus. One who had had utter peace from all eternity with the Father and the Spirit, who had known a peace that surpasses comprehension that's not worthy to be compared to the fleeting sense of peace that we may experience in this life. And yet it was rent asunder in that moment. Do you know why? Because he was doing it for you. He was doing it for me. He was taking on the wreck of sorrow and grief so that he could make peace for you. He could make all things right. Don't you see that Jesus' loss of peace on the cross is the means through which you gain peace by his blood. As Jesus is passing by us this morning, don't you see this? He's entered Franklin today on a call, 
And he has come down, opened these doors by his spirit. He's here present with us in this room by his word as he promises in the spirit. And the question is, when he sees Franklin, when he sees Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, does his eyes fill up with tears? Does he weep? Does he weep over us? Does he weep over you? Because you don't know the things that make for peace and your eyes are blind, or does the smile come across the Lord Jesus' face because he sees that you've received the making of peace by his blood in your heart? The peace of Christ is ruling in your heart to which you've been called. It is my prayer as a congregation that the Lord would more and more and I, I fear praying it at times in my flesh, but when I'm in the Spirit before the truth, I'm compelled to pray, Lord, take away false peace from us. False peace is killing us. It's killing us. And we need the life of the Lord Jesus in us by His love. And we need to experience what Paul knew when he was wasting away in a Philippian jail and he was singing hymns at the top of his lungs. If that's a mystery to you, then don't stop till you find out why. And that answer is here in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian and non-Christian alike, Jesus is the answer. He is your only peace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, let this peace, this peace that is Christ, rule in our hearts until you rule completely. And the shalom that you have promised in the new heavens and the new earth at your return stretches as far as the curse is found. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.